everyone. Welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name's Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week, going to guide you gently through another show and uh, lots to talk about this week. Frank, we've had a busy week, haven't we, with our PR Week Awards judging, the best places to work launch, and loads of end-of-year stories. Lots going on, yeah. But you and the team are on top of all of it, yeah? Top of all of it, yeah. And buzzing for the challenge of the next last couple of weeks of the year. And enjoying our time uh, with the judging panels uh, that we've been with this week. Always always um, fun, Always good to see how they react to certain types of work and what they're impressed by and what they're not impressed by. And it's it's very informative. Yeah, and we'll... uh, have the shortlist will be out next week, so I'm sure you'll all be waiting with bated breath for that. We uh, we'll talk about our Hall of Fame dinner, which was on Monday. Great group of honorees, and also the inaugural David Finn Award, a new uh, ad- addition to uh, the event, which was a lot of fun. As I said, we unveiled our best places to work as well this week, so that's re- as important as ever in uh, in the modern world of hybrid work and. Uh, all the challenges around that. The PR Week Global Awards chair has been announced. We've got uh, some reflections on the PR economy with some agency job cuts. We have uh, COP28 going on out in um, Dubai, so lots of PR pros out there. We'll chat about the latest in AI, and we'll also talk about a lot of people news, loads of end-of-year people's stories. And we have a great guest this week. It's Chris Graves, who's president and founder of the Ogilvy Center for Behavioral Science and well-known to PR Week readers as a former global CEO of Ogilvy PR and global chairman, as well as uh, a media career, career at Dow Jones, CNBC and Asia Business News. Chris, 19 years, but you're retiring. What's a young fella like yourself doing retiring so early? Well, Steve, you know it's a tragedy, isn't it? But I can't keep up with the likes of you, chess masters. You'll endure forever. No, you know, I, I've had a spectacular run starting in Asia and then with a global role. And then, you know, few people get the chance to be an entrepreneur within a big company. And with Ogilvy letting me start up their behavioral science unit uh, in collaboration and side by side with Rory Sutherland, who is a giant, as you know, it's been a ball. But you look around, and um, I just turned 65 a few weeks ago, and you know, and you're barraged by Medicare ads every four <laughs> seconds, and 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 you start and you start thinking, well, there are some really smart younger people who really need a shot at this stuff, uh, and indeed we have some. We've got Heather Watson now for behavioral science in the U.S., Dan Bennett for behavioral science in the U.K. and Europe, and Paolo Mercado, who we brought in from Nest running behavioral science in Asia. There's a really strong team. So I have founded my own little LLC called The Resonance Code, and I'm going to continue to do writing and speaking and research. But, you know, no more timesheets for me, baby. Yeah, yeah. I'm jealous, man. I'm jealous. But yeah, <laughs> that's a very noble attitude. And um, yeah, it's uh, sometimes it's time to pass on. I, I know you think Rory's a young man, but he seems to have been around quite a long time too. So he's still hanging in there and uh, still. Oh, uh, he is, and and, and he's got he's got a long runway, I'm sure. But he, he is he is younger in many ways than I. Uh, I think he's still a, a, a very whimsical four year old in many ways with yeah. a big brain. He's unique. He certainly is, and he's always worth uh, listening to but yeah tell us um actually that I was, I was 
when when we got the uh, interview set up, I was just thinking about first time we met was um, when I just literally landed in uh, the US in 2010 and took over at PR Week as editor-in-chief. We did a video interview at the Ogilvy HQ on 11th Avenue on the west side in New York City. And uh, I think it was you, I was interviewing you and Richard Edelman. And uh, I remember our reporter, Alex Bruel, who was with us at the time. She's now gone on to the Wall Street Journal. We're uh, in that nice studio with the white backgrounds. And it was, uh, it was a great conversation, actually. I really enjoyed it. And it, uh, it, it really got me excited about covering the industry. To, to, do you remember that? Or is it uh, sort of in the midst of, midst of time? What a horrible fabrication you've just made. I never would have sat next to Richard Edelman. No, of course. Well, maybe, I, I was, maybe I sat in the middle. No, no, no. I did, and I was thrilled because he is a giant among giants. And, you know, the, the weird thing is, you know, uh, Richard and I went to the same ancient boarding school. Um, oh, he wow. was about five years ahead of me, so I didn't actually know him there. It's only a four-year boarding school like a high school in the U.S. called Phillips Exeter Academy. Uh, but um, I think we came from remarkably different contexts and backgrounds. I went on as a full-ride scholarship kid from the projects, and Richard, not so much. <laughs> but, uh, he, you know, he was, the and, and maybe still is, the reigning king of PR, and I was this upstart from Asia who'd come in from journalism. So it was actually very nice of you to put me on the same school, at least, uh, you know, at same height as, as Richard. And I was very grateful that you had that conversation with me. Wow. Yeah. 2010 was uh, just many universes ago. I know. I know. And um, yeah, we're uh, PR Week celebrating its 25th anniversary this year. So it's... Congratulations. Um, yeah, which means I've been here for more than half of those years. But you're right about the young people. They're certainly snapping at my heels So as well. So let's see um, what happens in that respect. But tell us a bit about the um, Centre for Behavioural Science and what that it sounds very scientific and very but you were very really early in on this weren't you and um tell us what yep. the overlap is both with pr but also you know the other parts of communications and marketing yeah well thanks for asking that um you know i became obsessed long ago while i was still full on in pr and i was uh, a two-term chair of the uh Council of PR firms. The yeah, I remember Council, that. Yeah. It's known now. Yeah. And I was uh, on the trustees for the Institute for PR. And I, as anybody who served during those days would remember, I was obsessed uh, because I felt that there was a whole field of science we were not taking on board that actually I believe PR should own more than any other discipline. Uh, and, and indeed, you know, Bernays was the nephew of Sigmund Freud. And he was really coming from a kind of behavioral science background as a founder of modern PR. Mm. And I felt we had kind of lost our way and went too heavily into media relations and not enough into the science of human irrationality. And if you use a very highly rational approach in communications with humans, you're more than likely going to fail. Um, and so I went on this incredible obsessive deep dive starting maybe 15 years ago, and, and then uh, uh, did it full-time starting seven years ago. And here's what it revealed to me. It revealed that many of the assumptions and a lot of the conventional wisdom we had about communications, uh, including PR, uh, was just wrong and was not the most effective way to move humans or change behaviors. 
Um, the other thing I've learned now that has gotten such a deep dive is that we really need to respect heterogeneity. It's, it's been called the revolution of heterogeneity in behavioral science right now. And all they really mean is a kind of customization, personalization, and tailoring to individuals. And of course, PR has always done that and has done it by choosing the right messenger and the right tonality for effective PR. But this is actually much deeper than that. And so I embarked in this uh, and created a new form of research together with my research partner, John Poulsen, out of Cantar uh, in London, that's now won seven international awards. And basically what we discovered and what we use is what we're calling the sense-making genome. You know, you have a genome genome, but you have a sense-making genome that's very hardwired and pretty unchanging from about your mid-20s. And that is this hidden who, this makeup that you have that acts as a filter, that guides you, that distorts things. And if you can reveal this in individuals, you can much more effectively craft an engagement that will resonate with them. And so that really had been my obsession for the last seven years. And we found that it works really great in PR and in advertising to build, uh, you know, a more effective approach. It doesn't that, take uh, away the magic. It's just more effective. Yeah, because at some point, clients got interested, didn't they? And they were actually coming to you saying, we need some of this. Um, how were they using it? And what, what sort of um, impact did you have on, the, on their business and campaigns? Talk us through that a little bit. Yeah, one of the very first meetings I did was one of the world's largest financial services firm, a longtime client of many parts of Ogilvy. And I was talking to the person who was the president of all B2B. So, substantial position, a lot of, lot of revenues. Um, and I had 45 minutes to present our approach to behavioral science. And I had been forewarned this person's super busy, short attention span, may not look up from their phone during the whole time. But instead, they stared at me unblinkingly for 45 minutes. And at the end, uh, she said, uh, where have you been all my life? <laughs> and I felt gratified. But then she had a second thought. And she said, wait a minute, if everything you've been showing me is true, why doesn't my team, who are professed to be the best in the business, why aren't they experts in this and why aren't they using it already? And I found myself in an uncomfortable position because, you know, if I said, well, you know, I can't explain the ignorance of your deputies, that wouldn't go down well. Um, and so what I discovered at that moment was that people will go through a kind of Gartner hype learning curve, that they'll be really intrigued by this and then possibly disillusioned. And that's natural. And the part of the disillusionment is, oh, is this difficult? Is this hard? Does it take a long time? And the answer is, you know, real behavioral science, applied behavioral science is a science, which means that, you know, when agencies have this kind of DNA of wanting to put a, a thin veneer of science on things and push it out the door and brand it and commercialize it, uh, that's great, but you can be shot down for having lack of substance. So we decided to err on the side of taking our time, get it right, real substance that would be unassailable through lots of market testing that we could demonstrate. And where that's led us, yeah, our you know range of clients is from you know, toothpaste and consumer products to FEMA communicating climate change and mitigation needs, 
to pharma. We did the largest, most comprehensive study of vaccines and behavioral, um, or rather, hesitancy uh, and disinformation where we've worked with folks like DARPA. So it has a huge array of applications. And I think clients now, you know, the more they read and hear about it, are interested, um, but they will go through a period, no doubt, of that trough of disillusionment once you come off that hype curve where they'll say, ah, oh, you know, this behavioral science stuff is, is slow going or takes too yeah. long. Um, and that's normal. That's normal. But I think we need to err on the side of accuracy and truth in doing this and not overclaiming. Yeah, believe the science and keep investing in it. What would you say the thing is that PR, the profession generally is missing then by uh, not including some of the behavioral uh studies that you've done in their in their practice or in in the way they operate what what are the what are the sort of two or three things that they're not uh, that they're missing out on here they are missing out on a ton and here's why because pr which is you know where i lived for a long time um still uses a lot of conventional wisdom you look back on past cases you look at what you felt worked or what won awards when it comes to messaging and message testing, you brainstorm, you would brainstorm with a client, you come up with five messages, you test them, you pick two winners, you test them, you run with the winner, and then perhaps nothing happens. Maybe you have zero effectiveness, you don't move the needle, and everybody scratches their heads and says, what happened there? Or you have some little bit of fortuitous serendipity and something works and you don't know why and you can't replicate it. Behavioral science reveals two really important things that traditional PR did not. First is what we call the real why. Not why people tell you, not the conventional wisdom, but the real motivation of humans that can be pretty obfuscated. Um, the second is what we call the hidden who. Each one of us, 50% from birth and then later more, comes pre-wired to every context, every decision, preference, opinion. And that pre-wiring is super powerful, but none of it, not one bit was tested for in traditional research. And so by doing this, we're revealing a kind of what we call sense-making genome. And this sense-making genome allows us to have a blueprint for much more effective engagement. So I believe that, you know, PR is not, you know, they're, they're not Luddites and PR, is, as long as I was in PR, uh, great respecters of research, but I think they're starting from the wrong place. Yeah. And they need to start now from a behavioral science place and not a traditional research place. But they could also, sounds like they could also use it to crack that measurement nut that, you know, the industry has struggled with for decades. And it could actually help them tie outcomes to um, inputs in a smarter way than, you know, impressions or all these other things that don't really mean anything and which they struggle to uh, convince clients of the effectiveness of the practice. You can get so much more precise to that point. Let me give you a quick rundown. Did, as I was saying, the largest behavioral science, most com comprehensive behavioral science study of vaccine hesitancy Very in the quick US. One. So not only we test for 30 forms of vaccine hesitancy, we tested 17 behavioral science tests, how people decide what their personality traits are, what their worldviews are. Then we tested 16 narratives. But the narratives were not just, you know, arbitrary things that came out of a brainstorm. Each narrative was a Trojan horse for a behavioral science principle. 
And so you are really testing which behavioral science principle works best to overcome which bias with which individual. Very precise. And uh, obviously, the world is now obsessed with AI, and, and that's just been the story of 2023. What's the crossover, if you like, the Venn diagram between behavioral science and AI? And what do you think AI, you know, there's a lot of talk about AI, but there's not much actual real action or real solid things happening that you can point to and say, oh, wow, that's brilliant, you know, or that's a brilliant campaign um, used using AI, or that's a brilliant piece of consultation based in AI. Talk us through where you think that's going to go with your behavioral science hat on. Great. So I'm already using several forms of it. Um, and I think it's been an amazing tool. But frankly, we're in an Oppenheimer moment for AI, behavioral science, and communication. And here's what I mean. Remember I was talking about that hidden who, that sense-making genome, yeah. decoding every individual? Well, AI um, is enormously capable at doing that and then matching tonality, word choice, et cetera, for each profile of an individual, way beyond demographics or psychographics. So that's really cool as using it as a simulator. So in other words, what I will do is prompt it to act like certain behavioral uh, segments, certain audience segments, and then actually let it run a battle with itself over what's more persuasive. And so you can begin to watch like a screenplay that goes wild, writing itself a whole simulated conversation where you, one side of the AI is trying to convince the other side of the AI. And you can see where it's failing and where it's succeeding. So one, it's a terrific simulator for communicators. Two, it's an empathy tool. You can use it to better understand what is getting through, what's not getting through, what word choices and tonality and framing might get through better. But three, here's the danger. Uh, it's something that's emerging called dark empathy. Yeah. You know, I've been using it for things like vaccine hesitancy and climate change and trying to get healthier outcomes and combating disinformation. But you could use the same tools to actually manipulate uh, people against their own best interests. And that's something I fear very much because AI can decode you from your digital exhaust. And I don't mean to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but, you know, I've written about this with cited peer-reviewed studies. AI today can look at your digital exhaust, meaning your digital footprint on social media, any interview you've done, and do a pretty damn job of decoding who you really are in ways you've not disclosed. Yeah, and that's why some of the founders of it are sort of um, backtracking a little bit or at least raising ethical concerns. So, yeah, that's that's definitely something to bear in mind. Chris, fascinating to hear about all this. And I, I, think, I suspect you're still going to be busy, if, even in your retirement, doing your new gig. Just... Uh, sort of panning out a bit more and going back to your time as a global CEO of a, a big PR firm. Where do you think we're at now as, uh, as an industry? Uh, it feels like we have, uh, you know, the PR profession has a lot more respect, especially at the C-suite level. But what are your reflections on that as we move into 2024 and a really uh, what's going to be a crazy year? You know, uh, Steve, you will remember there was even such a moment of existential crisis in the industry that it was, it was being put forward that maybe we should drop the name PR entirely yeah. for the industry, remember? Yeah. Um, and, and I'm glad people backed uh, away from that. Um, but I, I think it continues to evolve for sure. It does continue to gain respect. I think people have understood 
you know, when they fall out of love with things like programmatic advertising and come back to genuinely an earned first approach, which everybody in PR has known really is the most substantive approach when you earn somebody's attention, earn their respect or admiration, earn the right to address them and change their mind. I think that that has, has evolved. Here's where it still needs to do a lot more, though. It needs to be respected as a profession and as a, I think the way to do that is through science. Uh, it's not through creativity because creativity is an intangible and you can't really prove that. I think you can prove that you're a social scientist and that social science can boost your effectiveness in communication. So I would love to see PR fully embrace behavioral science, own it more than any of the other disciplines. I think that's where it should head. I thought you might say something like that. But uh, <laughs> so, Chris, if ever, anyone wants to follow you um, in this new venture, what, how do they, uh, is there a website address or somewhere to go? There is uh, brand new. And so it's, it's a bit uh, rudimentary at the moment. But I called my uh, new company the Resonant Code because basically, if you can decode humans, you can better resonate with them. There you go. Uh, and so it's www.resonant.com theresonancecode.com. Okay, and I'm sure they can find you on all the usual search engines. I'm still on all the usual channels. All right, well, great to chat. We'll get your input to the uh, topical stories. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening and welcome to the PR Week Hall of Fame. The Hall of Fame 2023 dinners on Monday night, always a great occasion. This year, we also had the uh, first David Finn PR Week Award handed out to Jonathan Adeshek. From the first time I met Jonathan, I knew he was really special. And, you know, really overseeing communications and marketing with his deep background in public affairs. And with so much he has done at IBM, he represents everything that we can aspire to do as communication professionals. He's an inspiration to all of us, so thank you for that, Jonathan. And, you know, really um, heralding and guiding a company like IBM through reinvention, transformation, you know, whether it's hybrid cloud, whether it's AI, and then now looking toward quantum computing. You know, this is really what's so meaningful to all of us. Um, Jonathan, you really stand out and you really deserve to, you know, be recognized amongst all of us today as being a very special person who's bringing something really unique to the communication industry. It was a great evening, wasn't it? Took us through it. Yeah, really terrific. And another great class of honorees this year. And the number of great speeches highlighted by a few guest appearances from former presidents and top business people and all kinds of VIPs. So this year's class uh, was Vicki Jordan Adams of FGS Global. To all of my uh, past and present colleagues that are in the room, I just have a couple of words. I have persisted. As all of you know, if you're women in this business, it is not easy. We have to work hard. We have to dance backward in heels. There's so many things that go into succeeding in public relations as a female. So one of the things that I really want to say here tonight is thank you to my husband, Barry Monroe Adams. Scott Allison of uh, his eponymous firm. I never dreamed that the company would reach this size. I never dreamed that we'd have so many amazing colleagues join us for the journey. I never dreamed that we'd have had so many amazing clients that would give us an opportunity around the world. We had a pretty uh, humbling start. We started a little cafe in San Francisco in the summer of 2001. And we sketched out an idea 
for an agency at this time. And the idea is it would be a place that people could stay forever and clients that would want to stay forever and that we would do great work. It was a great idea until we launched on September 4th, 2001. We had a great first week in business and then it was an absolute storm. It was two years where I went through my life savings, my wife's life savings as well. A uh, company was, I'm sure, bankrupt, but I don't think we're smart enough to realize that. Um, but we, we hung in there and we persevered. Walmart's Dan Bartlett. The family at Walmart, I lean on them every day. Walmart is too big for any one individual to try to even come close to running, and so you have to have a team environment. The trust we build with the media, the trust we build with stakeholders, all those things are based on relationships, and relationships take time, they take effort, authenticity, and that's sometimes a lost art. Those are the things that I've felt like over the course of my career that I've really tried to lean into is those relationships that build trust. Maureen Lippy of Lippy Taylor. So these Bond girls inspired me to become an entrepreneur. It, it's one of the reasons I left editorial because there was no financial security and unfortunately most of the editors that I know today are out of work and many of them are broke. So, you know, they used to kind of look down on the PR girls, but you know, who's laughing now? Um, and of course, years later, I started Lippy Taylor. The public relations agency gave me everything I ever dreamed of having. Really a, a beautiful and a very balanced life. I mean, who could ask, ladies, could we ask for anything more than that? Hillary Rosen. I tried to figure out, like, why is it I'm good at this? And I, I think it's because I, I sort of perfected the art of pretending to clients that I didn't give a shit if they took my advice or not. And, you know, because that matters, really. You know, they think you're more authentic if you're not that invested. Um... We know it's true, right? <laughs> they, they want you to be dispassionate so that, because they're freaking out, so you need to be dispassionate. But the truth is I always cared a lot, and I faked not caring a lot. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that building SKDK with my colleagues means so much to me, and my OG Josh is here, and Bill is here, and the new leaders of the organization are here and I could not be more proud of, of the company that we created and the company that is still existing today. And Microsoft's Frank Shaw. While this award tonight is, is by nature a individual recognition, I know that all the success I have had is because of the incredible team uh, at Microsoft and with our agency partners. It's the culture of experimentation that we've created, brainstorming, risk-taking, failing fast, it is what gives us energy, gives us new ideas. It makes Microsoft such a fun place to work. As in the Marines, leadership is not about having the ideas. It is about creating a team with great ideas and the ability to ferociously execute and adapt. So to my team members here and around the globe, thank you very much. It was a good night. I think a, a lot of people got reintroduced to some legendary folks within the industry. Yeah, well, lots of families there and friends and colleagues and supporters. And as you said, um, there was uh, George W. Bush on one of the videos for Dan Bartlett doing a bit of sh comedy shtick with one of uh, Dan's former comms colleagues at the White House. Yes, Mark McKinnon. You know, we made a lot of good friends during our time as governor and president, one of whom was Dan Bartlett. And 
Amazingly enough, Bartlett is now in the Hall of Fame, PR Hall of Fame. Very soon. First ballot. Oh, yeah. Well, I hope so. Uh, and so, therefore, Dan, from MCAT and me, MCAT and 43, we send our heartiest congratulations. Did you like that one? It was a Texas, a Texas skit. So it was very Texan, yes. Yes. Yeah, and like Frank says, there were a couple of other presidents in the videos from the honorees, as well as some really high-profile CEOs, Satya Nadella giving um, props to Frank Shaw. Congratulations, Frank, on this very well-deserved honor. You have built a world-class team that shares your passion, vision, and values, and who play a critical role here at Microsoft by orchestrating the stories we tell, engaging with our customers, our partners, and helping amplify our impact in communities around the world. You exemplify our culture and live our mission every day. Thank you for all you do to advance communications at Microsoft and beyond. Doug McMillan from uh, Walmart on uh, Dan Bartlett's video. So it was the uh, usual really high-profile event. And uh, Jonathan Adeshek, fantastic yeah. practitioner at IBM, he got the first PR Week David Finn Award, which was set up to honor an icon in the industry, David Finn, and the values that he stood for and the value of really going for it. You know, he was, a, he was an artist, he was creative, but he was also a proponent of going for it, even if you didn't think... You know, you think it was something you couldn't do. His uh, philosophy was just go for it and, and give it a try. And um, and Jonathan spoke very nicely to that. To David, for who this award is named, you're forever an icon. Your memory lives on in all the people you've touched. And I'm humbled and honored to receive an award in your name and will continue to live by your mantra. Just because you don't know how to do something doesn't mean you can't. Thank you all for making this award possible, and I'm gonna strive for delivering creative innovation, positive change, and truly push the boundaries of what is possible. For the rest of the night, nothing left to do, but smile, smile, smile. Thanks. It's been a busy week for us, Frank, because we've also unveiled our best places to work. Yeah, and, and this is one of my, my favorite lists every year because we get to um, get a little bit outside of our comfort zone geographically, so to speak, with some of the winners and take a look at some of the cultures from firms that, you know, maybe just don't get the amount of coverage that um, that some agencies within the big cities do. And so we have... Uh, honorees this year, including Gunpowder, which is uh, from Delafield, Wisconsin. Um, and they're one of the firms, you know, showing off what they call a, you know, real flexible environment, a lot of work from home, maybe unlimited uh, part-time um, and pay time off. And uh, take, a, take a look at a few others. There's uh, Oklahoma City's Candor, which is a great name for a firm. And great they really stressed their transparency. Uh, exact Sciences, healthcare firm based in Madison, Wisconsin, um, and a few others. The, the Wisconsin firms really taken over the list this year. And yeah, no, so it's great to be able to take a look at some of these shops in which, you know, maybe we don't get to see their leadership or, or see their employees all the time. Yeah, there's great PR going on across the whole country. And, uh, you know, PR Week is not just an East Coast or a West Coast uh, publication. We want to cover the whole country. And that helps us to do that, as do a lot of our other ventures. But uh, there were also some repeat winners. I think Golan won again, didn't it? And uh, and some in-house winners as well, Frank. Yeah, um, some of the in-house ones are really interesting. 7-Eleven on the list this year. So is Bacardi. Uh, so is uh, an organization that makes the case for blockchain, the Blockchain Association. Uh, and FanDuel, 
is on the list too. So a lot of a uh, lot of really interesting in-house teams as well. All right, and then we've also named our uh, chair for the. PR Week Global Awards this year. Yeah, and it's Sabrina Alahi. Um, she's she's going to be the chair of the PR Week Global Awards 2024. Uh, she is the global head of PR at Charlotte Tilbury Beauty. And we should point out, too, the entry deadline for the Global Awards is fast approaching. She's also, she's an alum of the University of Delaware and has an MA in Brands, Communication and Culture from Goldsmiths of the University of London. So the early bird deadline for these is December 12th. The final deadline is January 25th. And the event will be held on May 15th, 2024 at the London Marriott Hotel Grosvenor Square. Groveness. Groveness Square. Gro- Grove. Grove. <laughs> There's an S in there, though. <laughs> <Yes>. Grosvenor Square. <laughs> well, somebody, AI has, repl- has replaced Frank. Come on now. Uh, <laughs> AI Frank. <laughs> we can only hope, Chris. That'll be the ultimate litmus test for AI. Can they pronounce Grosvenor? Yes, indeed. And Lieutenant. All right. So um, let's talk about the PR economy because it's been such a crazy year without mm. not really being able to predict anything. We didn't get that recession we thought we did, but we do know most clients have been tightening their belts and that has through the year gradually filtered down to the agencies. And, you know, we've had a few job cut stories um, so what, what, what's your reflections on that? And talk us through some of these stories, Frank. Yeah, it, it, look, it, it is, as you said, I mean, there have been some client cutbacks. And, and so these have manifested themselves in agencies, including uh, a latest round of layoffs at Ketchum, with which uh, let go of more than 20 uh, staffers recently. Um, so uh, the global chief marketing and integration officer at Ketchum, Jim Joseph, called it uh, a very tough few days. And he said he wanted to reiterate that Ketchum remains a strong business and the performance over the past several months against the financial plan has been a bit challenged. But after a thoughtful reassessment of these results, we made the determination that they needed to eliminate some more roles. Also having layoffs, uh, Real Chemistry, which has pulled back 66 positions, uh, which is 3% of its workforce of about 2,000 people. Uh, it's spanning various departments. Um, and their CEO uh, called them called the layoffs both necessary and difficult, given the market headwinds faced by our clients and the impact to our business. Now, I think that's um, that's an interesting story to a lot of people because a lot of folks think that healthcare tends to be recession proof, which is not exactly true. And so, yeah, these are these are some of the latest pullbacks in staff uh, at agencies. Yeah, and we've had some on the the client side as well. Yeah, we saw those horrible cuts at Spotify on Monday. I mean, yes. 1,500 people. That's a that's a 17% of their staff. Yeah. And it's, it's you know, Spotify is cutting the workforce by 17%. It's their steepest uh, job cuts, um, 1,500 roles. And, uh, you know, what I think is probably uh, very frustrating to a lot of people losing their jobs there is that uh, Spotify is looking to add 100 million users in 2023, which is its biggest year for bringing on um, for bringing on new users. So, so some of what they're doing is obviously working and it reported a profit last quarter. Uh, so, you know, you could imagine that as they look to streamline more, there's some, some frustrated individuals checking out of there. I look at the Spotify situation and, you know, I worked in, in TV for more than 20 years and went through the whole shakeout, you know, the birth of cable and then cable versus satellite and then the cord cutting and I think you're seeing a kind of microcosm of this with Spotify because they have advertising supported, they have subscription only, 
Um, you know, they, they really are probably going through what the hell is going to be our successful model going forward on this. And I couldn't help but think back about how similar it was to television, cable television, streaming, cord cutting. Yeah, it's uh, and they just made a profit, but I don't think they've made a. I think was that their first profit, Frank? It's uh, if it's not its first, it's a rarity. Yeah, so at some point, I guess you've got to get the business uh, fit and, and and has to start making money for its investors and, and what have you. But uh, yeah, Chris, you'll have been in that uh, horrible position, you know, end of the year. It's a hor- it's not a nice time to lose your job, is it? But that's the financial year, so I guess. Every, every company's putting its budgets together and sometimes the you know the the december time does come with some job cuts if there's a bit of um belt tightening required yeah i'm actually surprised they're doing it in december because everybody does their 20 their their next year planning starting you know september maybe end yeah. of august so I, I you know i guess that in behavioral science you have what's called an optimism bias where you think ah you know it's tough but we're better than the others we're going to hang in there and hope for the best and maybe that's what companies are doing. But I think a lot of companies take that first really hard look uh, in September, not in December. Yeah, that's true. And in the financial world, it often is around before bonus time, isn't it? So that they don't have to pay people's bonuses out. So I don't know whether that plays into it as well. Um, but yeah, it's, look, it's, it's nobody revels in stories like this. We have to cover them because they're part of the industry. But we, uh, our thoughts go out to everyone who's looking for work. And I think for good people, there are, there are still plenty of opportunities out there. So sometimes, um, you know, every cloud has a, a silver lining in that respect. But, you know, um, good luck to everyone who's looking for work in, in the mm-hmm. current environment. You know, on the, on, on the plus side, Spotify is one of the world's great treasure troves of what truly makes us human. Meaning that, you know, when people go on Instagram or in Facebook, they do impression management. They put their best image of them forward, but not necessarily a true one. In Spotify, people are listening for themselves. And so the implicit data on who people really are and what they really love and what makes them sad and happy there's no better treasure trove than Spotify. Yeah, that's a good point, Chris. We, we talked about that last week with Sabrina Sanchez on the show when uh, Spotify was doing some more positive PR, shall we say, around um, the Spotify wrapped, wrapped. Spotify yeah. wrapped, which was literally profiles of your what you listen to. Yeah, you can't hide from what, from your listeners, listening habits. So, yeah, okay. Uh, COP28, that's still going on in Dubai, and there's lots of PR pros out there. We know that. We're doing a piece on it this week, Frank. But uh, what did you notice from uh, what, from the, the coverage and social media pics and all that stuff? Yeah, it's extremely geopolitical with uh, with Vladimir Putin making a rare um, a rare venture away from his extremely long table to uh, go to the <laughs> Middle East uh, this week to visit the UAE. Was uh, it him or was it a lookalikey? <laughs> already going to have somebody tasting my food for me, so I don't, <laughs> I don't know how deep I want to go into this. But uh, yeah, so there's that. Uh, our climate envoy, the U.S. climate envoy, John, John Kerry, is pushing uh, more nuclear energy. Um, there's a lot of, lot of players pushing a lot of different agendas here. So um, among the agency folks who are there, uh, our reporter Ewan Larkin has talked to a few of them, and then he's talked about how, um, you know, look, we know we know climate stories don't tend to break through in the U.S. media the way that a lot of advocates hope they would. 
Um, and you know, whether that's a positive story or a negative story. So, so where a lot of them are focused over a cop 28 in Dubai is, is, um, getting the people that they are representing or that they're working for, um, into prime positions at these events, uh, that are taking place there in these gatherings, you know, that, that you've also mentioned they're very prominent at Davos. Um, and that's actually, actually where a lot of the action is more so than getting them in front of TV cameras. Uh, so that's a, that's an interesting strategy that a lot of them are using over a COP28. Yep, I'll be in Davos, actually. So if you are going, let me know. I'd love to catch up and see what you're doing over there. And we've got a couple of roundtable discussions for in-house CCOs, if you're um, interested in being part of those. But yeah, on the COP28 thing, I noticed uh, APCO posting on social. They've got a big team out yeah. there. I think um, he's Rudafin out there as well. And um, Richard Edelman, the aforementioned, was posting pictures not only from the, the Edelman section at uh, Dubai, but he took the chance to visit his uh, Bahrain office in Saudi Arabia. As we all know, they're doing a lot of work over there. So, uh, Chris, behavioral yeah, you know, science. Frank, what, what did the Wall Street Journal call this event? Well, it wasn't a very favorable the climate event, but it was along event the lines hosted, of the, Yeah, the climate sub, summit hosted by energy companies or so to speak, but the, it was close to that. The climate summit host, hosted by big energy, Chris, yeah. you know, in terms yeah. of behavioral science, how does that uh, reflect and come over to well, the rest of the world? Of all, you know, first of all, when you talk to people, just I, I dare anybody listening to this, go out to somebody who is not a PR climate expert and just ask them what COP28 is. Yeah. Uh, you're not going to find anybody who has a clue. Um, and, you know, the communications, and, and I've done a lot of work for a long time in, in this area, and it's, it is difficult because you're up against a lot of uh, human irrationalities, one of which is as much as we profess to care about the future, we actually are all beholden to what's called a present bias or temporal discounting. Push comes to shove, we worry a hell of a lot more about our next Zoom than we do about saving the planet because we figure somebody's going to come along and do something in the next 30 years, so I'm not going to really stress about that too much. So that's part of it. And then when people go the other direction saying, well, we'll make them care by scaring the bejesus out of them, there's an effect that comes out that behavioral scientists call the tug of war between salience and self-efficacy. And here's all that means. If you scare people too much, they throw in the towel and say, there's nothing I can do. It's too big. And so you really have to make these things jargon-free, concrete, and more upbeat. I mean, who likes to be told, lose weight all the time, go on a diet all the time, um, you know, get rid of this, stop drinking, don't drive your car anymore. You know, humans react badly to being told what they cannot do. And so it needs to be reframed about the profits, the joy of what you can do that's more responsible behavior going forward. So I think there's a framing issue. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Also, you if you can make uh, sustainability profitable, that makes um, business interested as well, doesn't it? You know, alternative forms of energy and what have you. So if you can flip the uh, flip the, the coin yeah. a little bit on the way you-, hey, you... You know what it's just like? It's just like trying to get people to eat vegetarian. And there's a group out of the UK called WRC that figured out, you know how you do that? You don't call it vegetarian. You don't say it's good for you. You don't say it's good for the planet. You say it's spicy, it's juicy, it's tasty. And if you want to get people to drive electric vehicles, you don't say it's good for the planet. 
you say you go zero to 60 faster than any car you've ever felt. So we're reframing these things in an aesthetic way. And very few people actually want to be monks. You're right about COP. I mean, I think it stands for Conference of the Parties. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. which is kind of meaningless, isn't it? So it's not a great branding um, position either. But uh, anyway, you know, lots of important stuff being debated and we'll, uh, we'll look out for Ewan's piece. They'll be out on Thursday. We're talking about AI now, Frank. A couple of stories we did, one on about Weber, one about Hotwire. Yeah. Uh, Weber has introduced what they're calling their AI accelerator. Uh, There's three parts to it. The AI on-ramp, AI studio, and AI redesign. The on-ramp helps CCOs and CMOs and their teams familiarize themselves with AI tools. The studio is a piloting and prototyping program. And the AI redesign's goal is to give counsel for restructuring or reshaping teams and providing new ways of working with one another. Uh, Hotwire has also introduced AI into their data and analytics offering, and they say their goal is to, quote, identify the most impactful messaging storylines, reporters, and influencers. So they're also rolling out three new offerings as part of their service, Messaging IQ, Newsroom IQ, and IQ Brief. And this is for their clients, right? So yep. there's, there's actual business behind it. You know, I'm old enough to remember when the web first came online and people actually had business cards with the word internet on it as their <laughs> expertise. And I think we're at that kind of moment with AI that it's just going to be very rapidly a tool for everybody. You won't need to, God, you won't need to code. It, it will code for you. Yeah. So the notion, you know, the, the best expertise will be like people who write great briefs in your PR agency. They're called prompt engineers. Mm. And, th- and the people who do the best prompts will win. Yeah, and one agency's actually rebrand, not rebranding as prompt, but they've, uh, uh, Lippy Taylor, stroke 12 note, has um, launched a prompt as a sort of uh, um, part of their company. Chris, if you were a global PR agency CEO now, what would you be doing with your AI, in, in a nutshell, what would you be doing with your AI strategy and, and, and what would you be offering to clients? One, I'd be running simulations. You know, you do this in finance all the time where you run simulations and you do, you know, Monte Carlo's, as they call it, massive simulations. You can run simulations by uh, basically giving the AI audience segment, prompting it with very detailed, very rich details about each audience segment and how they're different. And then you can test against those segments your different messaging. But before you even choose what to test, you can ask the AI what framing and tonality has the best chance of working with that segment because of their biases, their cultural filters, et cetera. So one, I would use it as a kind of simulator to test. Um, two, it would be a great internal training tool. Um, you could use it for people who have not spent a lot of time in communications yet to get faster up to speed, uh, learn, uh, get there. Um, I, I think there are a number of uses that are being overlooked. People are looking at it more from the visual point of view or text to visual point of view. You know, I, I tried that. And I still use it, uh, but I've had some really terrible uh, outcomes. You know, uh, one came out kind of like a Sharknado poster that was not <laughs> meant to do anything like that. So I, I think we're, we're, that's the, the bright, shiny candy that we're looking at, the visual side. But using it as a simulator 
and a kind of empathy tool to better understand our target audiences, I think, is overlooked. Yeah, good advice. Thanks, Chris. All right, Frank, let's finish with a roundup of people news. Loads of big um, people moves uh, this week. Yeah, Coca-Cola has brought on Katharina Jawaharlal as VP of Corporate and Brand PR. She was previously built and ran Meta's partner communications team. Now, this, uh, this continues the trend of a lot of tech uh, communications executives and top ones moving into the non-technology world, uh, but also bringing innovation with them. So uh, we will see what she does at Coca-Cola. BCW has named Tracy Naden as its North American President of Health and Wellness. Uh, she was most recently North America President of Libby Taylor Group. That's a that's a big hire for Jeez, BCW, right and on. she will start at the beginning of next year. And the former columnist at PR Week, Eileen Scheil, uh, who is a longtime alum of the Cleveland Clinic, is going to oversee the Wild Cornell Medicine's comms division, uh, which has more than 40 people in it in its uh, communications and public affairs group. She starts on February 1st um, and is going to serve on the leadership team of Wild Cornell Medicine. So good move for her within the healthcare world as well. Yeah, her articles still get picked up, they don't do. they, in our, yes. artic- in our uh, archives. So uh, good. Welcome back, uh, Eileen. Chris, it's always a pleasure to chat to you. Really interesting stuff. And I'm sure you're going to be super busy even in retirement, but uh, doing it on your own pace. So wish you well with that. And I'm sure we'll stay in touch. Thanks for being a guest with us today. Steve and Frank, I'm honored. I'm delighted. And thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Don't forget our Women of Distinction is open for entries. 19th of January is the standard deadline. PR Week Awards, the big night of Oscars of PR, the 25th Anniversary Awards, 14th of March, 2024. And uh, the early bird deadline for the Healthcare Awards is the 18th of December. But that's all we got time for. We'll see you next time on the PR Week. <laughs>